This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. I love it. Well, you guys, uh, if you have a Bible, you can take that out of this time, and we're going to be hanging out in Matthew chapter 7. Um, tonight is our last uh, sermon through the series we've been in the last couple months through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you haven't been with us, that's totally fine. Uh, there's something for you uh, tonight. Also, you're welcome to go back and listen to the podcast and just kind of catch up. And the reason we encourage that is not because we think our podcast is amazing, uh, but because we believe God's Word is amazing. And as a new church, um, being six months old, uh, one of the things we felt would be important and foundational for us was to look at uh, maybe the most uh, significant series of teachings that Jesus has, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the manifesto of his kingdom, kind of his message he wanted to get across. Uh, matter of fact, it's the first message that Matthew really records him giving, uh, which really reveals what he, what he came on earth to do, and that was to announce something that was going to change the world, and that announcement was God was not only in heaven, but his rule and reign was here on earth right now. And it was coming through Jesus. And how, what that meant for humanity was that everything was about to change. And so the Sermon on the Mount is what does that mean for humanity? And, and Jesus lays out um, really his desire for people involved in and adopted into God's kingdom. And he does this in such a masterful way where it draws you in. It's beautiful, but it's also provocative and challenging. And it just leaves you absolutely transformed if you let these words seep into your soul and you obey them, which we're going to be talking about tonight. So we're really excited to kind of land this uh, land this sermon. So yesterday we had uh, this massive community event where 10,000 people show up. Called, not us, we didn't throw it. Uh, but we, uh, it's called Bro-Am, and we said, I'm like, hey, we'd love to be a part of this. This is in our backyard, thinking that they were going to have us pick up trash. And, but they gave us some really neat opportunities to serve uh, kind of the professional surfers and bring lunch for the surf contest and get to be backstage and run hospitality for the bands. And so um, dozens of people from our church were serving at this event, and so Jen and I got to go and uh, hang out backstage with all the bands, with Switchfoot and some of the other people, um, just kind of, you know, filling water bottles and taking trash out and just serving the best we could. But what was so neat about that experience was uh, these, are, these are bands and people that I've always admired and looked up to as a musician and um, people who are really influential in our city and really in our nation, and it never disappoints me when I ever have these opportunities, which aren't often, that people are really just people. And specifically, when I got to be around kind of the, the people who help run the Bro-Am and Switchfoot and those guys, is their heart and their kind of their genuine posture of humility was so refreshing. I remember walking away from that event, not being like, what a great concert or what an amazing event, but thinking like, what incredible hearts that these people have. And I was, as I was studying for the, the message tonight, I, I think that's really the heart behind the Sermon on the Mount, is for thousands of years, followers of Yahweh, followers of God, had admired, often from a distance, and been in awe, and Jesus shows up, and he invites people behind the curtain, backstage. He says, I want you to know God. 
I want you to know my heart, and it's going to happen through me. And Jesus points to himself and says, if you want to know what the Father looks like, you've seen me. And so what Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount is he gives us this peek behind the curtain in a way that we've never had before. And what's revealed is absolutely staggering. And so that's what we've been journeying through the past few weeks is understanding what does it look like not just to know about God, but to know who he is and to know what his heart is behind his law, behind his covenant. And uh, this is kind of Jesus' closing of that sermon. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be uh, in chapter 7, starting verse 13. And we're going to be talking about three different kind of sections tonight. One is we're going to be talking about a new paradigm. And the first thing Jesus does uh, in this section of scripture is he absolutely challenges the paradigm of the day, the understanding, the worldview of his audience. Uh, the second thing he does is he presents a, a new foundation. He says, if you want to change the very foundation of your soul, this is what it'll look like. And then lastly, he really um, models for us a new approach of what relationship with God is, looks like. So let's start with number one, a new paradigm. Um, Starting in verse 13 in Matthew chapter 7, says, Even through, or enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Just, a, just some nice light reading on a Sunday afternoon here in Encinitas. Um maybe some of the most challenging words we've heard from Jesus yet. And if you, if you read that seriously and you took that in and you didn't skim it, there's a part of you that probably feels a little bit frazzled, a little bit um, unsure, like, well, that, that seems kind of harsh, right? There's a, there's a lot leading to destruction, a few leading to life that, you know, that there's going to be people who think they're in and they're going to show up on that day and they're out. And there's, there's all of these things going on here that are really challenging um, as, as a reader and even as a pastor as I'm getting ready to preach this. But it's important to understand something here. As uncomfortable as we may feel, let's imagine for a second how the audience would have felt as they would have heard these words. Because I, I bet they probably felt more uncomfortable than you do right now. And the reason for that is because Jesus is speaking a very specific message to a very specific audience who had a very specific worldview that they had grown in, up in. It wasn't new or progressive. It, was, it had been carried on through generation after generation after generation that was kind of these core beliefs about them and God. 
And what Jesus is doing right here is he's challenging their very sacred core beliefs. And so I just want to just bring these up. And the reason I want to bring up what the audience's imagination would have been is because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. So as much as I care about how this makes us feel, the best thing we can do is what would have this sparked in the original hearer's imagination? And, what is that, and then what does that mean for us? And so we have to understand a few things about his audience. Number one, his audience was almost predominantly Jewish. Matthew, the, the author, is writing to a Jewish audience and is probably mostly male, probably mostly kind of steeped and learned within Jewish tradition in the Jewish scriptures. And so part of that demographic had a few things that they knew to at their core. And the first one is this, is because they were Jewish, they were in with God. That simply because their DNA and their cultural heritage, they were on the inside, which also meant they had a core belief that everyone who was not Jewish was on the outside. Well, you can imagine what that breeds within your spirit after years and years and decades and generations is all of a sudden there begins to be this very strong sense of us versus them. A sense of almost spiritual apathy of like, well, I'm, I'm in, I'm a child of God, so there's nothing really I need to do. But within that, uh, within kind of that subculture of that Jewish subculture also is there's other core value that although you were automatically in because you were Jewish, you could raise your ranking and your hierarchy within this status based upon your performance, so your religious duty and, your, and how you would obey the law would rank you, not if you were in or out with God, but how you ranked within Jewish culture. And so you have these two very, very strong paradigms for his audience that I'm in, they're out, and I will perform so that I will raise my standard within my culture. And so Jesus comes and he starts saying things like, there is a gate that is narrow, and there's a road that is long and few, and it leads to life, and few find it. So immediately, you're like, few? Well, thank God I'm Jewish, because I'm one of the few. But Jesus takes it a step further and starts to challenge this idea that, no, 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 no. This is not about what family you were born into And we find out in John's gospel that the word gate is actually the word Jesus uses for himself. I'm the gate. It says in John 10 verse 9. And when Jesus says uh, there is a long road, it's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So these are both terms that we find out later in Jesus' ministry is actually titles he gives himself. There is a narrow gate, that's me, and a long road, that's me, that leads to life. And what Jesus is doing right here is absolutely challenging and provocative for his listeners because what he's saying is like, listen, you don't just get in because you're born into this. What happens is what leads to life is not how you're born or even necessarily how you live. It's, it's me. I'm it. And you see for the first time in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus stops talking so much about the law and their understanding of it and starts actually pointing all things towards him. It's about me. And so he moves on from putting the focus on himself. And, and it would be really easy just to start read this. And if we don't understand this, to start being like, man, Jesus seems really exclusive. 
Like not a lot of people are getting into heaven or something like this, but it's actually not what Jesus is saying here. And, and the reason I believe that is just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says this statement in verse 11. He says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is just so baffling. He's talking to Jewish audience saying there's a few that are going to find it. But then he starts saying that there's many that are coming from the east and the west, non-Jewish regions. They're coming and they're going to be feasting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what he's not, Jesus is not being exclusive. He's challenging their exclusivity. He's saying there's, what I'm talking about, the kingdom I am bringing is going to be different. How you enter into it is different than how you've always been told. It's not simply because you're born into it. It's not simply because of how your performance. It is all based upon me. And then the next thing that we kind of learn from this is at the very end when he starts saying that some of you drive out demons in my name, do miracles. I mean, can we say that's a pretty nice list. When's the last time you drove out a demon, right? Probably not that often. <laughs> Less miracle you've done, right? Less prophecy you've given. These, this is a, kind of an elite list. But for Jesus, he looks at that list and he says, that doesn't actually mean anything. And he, and he puts it all on this one statement. Depart from me, I never knew you. powerful statement that Jesus is saying right here is, do you want to know who has made it in? It's those who I know. It's those who knew me. Which is sobering to think that you could be performing at the highest level of spiritual activity and still lack in your intimacy with Jesus. And it's exactly the point Jesus is driving home right here to an audience that was be- believed the exact opposite. He says, it all comes back, do you, do you know me? When this Greek word is this, this word gnosko, and it is this very intimate word, and it's not intellectual assent or academia. It's, it's not like I believe in God or I agree to this doctrine. No, 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 this is a relational knowing. Like, it's one thing, like, if Jen and I met each other through, an, through eHarmony, right? We didn't. It didn't exist back then. Um, thank God, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but, what, but if we met on this online dating website and I had studied her whole profile, right? I'm just like, okay, I know, like, her, her likes and her hobbies and, you know, I know her birthday and I know all these things. I've seen some photos um, but I've never been on a real date. And I'm talking to my friends, I'm like, oh man, you should see this girl I'm with. Whew, she's awesome. Like, really? Tell me about her. Well, she likes long walks on the beach. You know? She's born in February. Like, <laughs> you start going through this list. But I actually never, I, I don't know her at all. And this is sadly what has seeped into our modern idea of what it means to follow Jesus. How much do you know? What kind of Bible verses? What kind of Bible studies do you go to? How many underlines do you have in your Bible? Do you listen to Caleb more than twice a week? You know, like, 
how many Christian t-shirts do you own? I mean, there's all of these things that we look at, and, and it actually has nothing to do with, do you have an intimate relationship? Do you have, do you gnosko Jesus? Do you know him? And as a pastor, I am not only not excusing this, I am more in trouble than you. Because it is so easy for me to find myself in these patterns that I've become convinced, like, I totally know Jesus. You know, one of the best seasons of my life is when I stepped down from youth ministry a couple years ago, and God told me, I want you to stop speaking for six months, or preaching for six months. And I remember the first month was like, great. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I'm taking a little break. And around month two or three, I just started getting into this funk. And to, it actually turned into this depression where I wasn't leading any ministries. I had no sermon to preach. And I would sit there, and I just felt so empty. And I remember the Holy Spirit just whispering to me. It's like, I just want you to learn to be a Christian. I want you to learn to follow me. No one's watching no one cares, but I do. I want a relationship with you. I want you to read your Bible, not because you're going to go and regurgitate it to someone who needs it, but because you need it. Man, it was the best thing that ever happened to me before I planted a church, that I had to learn the very painful way that this and teaching and counseling and studying are great and beautiful, and I love them, and they're gifts and part of my calling, but they are not my relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is calling us into something so much deeper. He's calling us into Gnosko, to know him. This, the second thing that we're going to talk about tonight is a new foundation. Now, there was a popular rabbinical debate happening at the time. What was more important, to know or to do? And they would debate, and it's kind of this very philosophical era, right, where kind of Greek philosophy is on the rise and Jewish philosophy is on the rise, and people would talk, is it better to know or to do? And Jesus comes and prevents, presents kind of this third way where he says, yes. And he, and he lays out this idea that it's actually you have to know me and you have to practice what I am saying. You have to know, you have to receive, you have to hear, but you also have to live this out. I love what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, as long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and try to walk it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But, this is what I want you to pay attention to, if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me step by step, if I look only at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. Right? It, is, it is not a path of disciplines removed from relationship, and it's not a relationship that requires no activity. But it's the marrying of these two things that develops what Jesus is about to say is our foundation. So let's read Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I love this imagery that Jesus is using here. And he says, listen, storms are coming. And you have a choice, you have a ability to participate in, is this foundation, this house that is being built, will it stand or not? And I love what he does right after he lays out this beautiful argument. This is about knowing me. He immediately goes into, and it's also about obeying what I just said. You have to practice what I've laid out before you, specifically within the Sermon on the Mount, what I just taught you, you have to do these things. And by obeying and practicing these things, you are now choosing to build your house upon the rock and not upon sand. Now, this is, a, this is great imagery for his audience because back then, they didn't build houses like we do. So don't, don't imagine like a cement square slab and then wood frames. What would happen is you would build a house probably out of mud, um, maybe stone, and you had this choice to make that the closer you built it towards a, a body of water, the easier life would be for you, but also the more uncertain. The more comfort you had also meant when the rainy season came, your house could wash away. Flood comes, your house could wash away. And the more you built it away and into the rocks, the safer it would be, but the more work it would mean for you. And he kind of gives us this imagery and this picture of this is what you have a choice to do right now. If you choose to hear what I just told you and walk away, then what you've done is you've made a comfortable choice. But what I'm asking you to do is everything I've just laid before you, live it out. This word, this word practice or, or do, I love the imagery. It's actually these two Greek words, hodopoeo, and it's used 10 times in the past verses we've just read, 10 times. What's funny is you don't recognize saying, he didn't say practice 10 times because this word is actually two Greek words combined. And it's the word hodo, which means path, journey, or great distance. And the word poeo, which means exercise, purpose, cause, or work. And you combine these two things. And so the same word that we use for road, the same word Jesus uses for saying, I'm the way, is the same word Jesus uses for practice and do. And what I love about the marriage of these two words is in our American culture, these are two separate things. Well, it's, it's a journey, it's a path, or you just do it. And for Jesus, no, no, no. Doing and practicing is a journey. It's a road, it's a path. You have to walk a great distance in practicing these things in order to accomplish it. This is not something you hear something, get inspired, you go and do it, and voila, you look like Jesus. He's inviting you, I want you to enter into this path, this road, this journey that requires work, and requires practice, and requires effort on your end. And as you do that, you are actually building your house on the rock. But I would want to challenge your, your idea of what it would look like to build your house on the rock, because it might be better translated, build your house in the rock. Uh, so last year I had uh, the ability to go to the Middle East, I had a friend call me up. Uh, Justice, who spoke here a few months ago, and he says, hey, do you want to go to Jordan? And I was like, well, I, maybe. And I'm like, when do, I need, when do I need to let you know by? He's like, tomorrow. I was like, what? 
And I'm like, well, I don't know, like, how Jen's going to feel about me going to the Middle East, you know, we just had a baby, and, and he's like, well, let me know tomorrow. So I go home and ask my, my wife with our, with our small children, I'm like, hey, can I go to the Middle East in two weeks? <laughs> um, and she's like, sure. And I was like, whoa, okay. I, that was kind of my fleece before the Lord, thinking she was going to say no, and I was like, out, you know. But he's like, no, go. So I, I'm traveling now, and that, that, Part of that wasn't frightening at all for me. The scariest part for me was who I was traveling with. Um, it, was, it was this guy who was just super loud, obnoxious, and very American. And um, just did not fit in. Um, we're literally like in the Dubai airport, airport. And he's just like, he's like, hey, I'll pay you five bucks if you jump over the moving walkway, walkway like handrail. So I did. Um, <laughs> And I fell, so I didn't. I decided not to show that video. Uh, but uh, we went on this, this epic trip and, and got to spend some time with some missionaries who live their life uh, amongst these beautiful people and share the gospel. And the very last day, we got to go on a, like a tour trip to Petra. So I want to show you the, the first picture. This is, this is Justice. Um, and then we got to hike up. And there's these beautiful things. These were built right around the, the, the time of when Jesus lived. Um, and uh, they're still just perfectly in these in in the condition that they're in, and so we're there. We're walking around, and what's amazing is you walk and you have to hike a few miles to get to these um, these different relics. And you walk, and it's this big river wash. And they and the tour guide is describing. He's like, "Yeah, there used to be these all around here, says, but over time, the river just washed them away." And and, and so, and I've never really I've seen a couple pictures online, but I had really no idea what I was walking into. And then you turn this corner, and there is, it looks like, a, like, the, like these massive, probably like 60 to 80-foot walls. And there's only like a few feet between you to walk through. And this is where the floods would come, and then they would be pressed into these walls. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't flash floods anymore. And so you walk through, and again, you walk a few miles, and you turn around this corner. And, um, and this, is what, this is what you see. This is what you come upon. And it was stunning. Like, over, it was overwhelming. Um, this picture does not do justice to the size, the sheer magnitude of the, this is a tomb um, for one of the kings. And again, just a few hundred miles from where Jesus was doing his ministry. And, um, and, the, and there were dozens and dozens of these. And you could walk in them and walk around in them, completely preserved without any help um, Man, they're just naturally done it. And they're describing the decades it took them to, uh, to build these into the rocks and to carve them up. And how they even got up there is um, like, literally unbelievable. I can't even imagine how they would do this. But as I was thinking about um, building your house upon the rock, this is actually maybe a better picture that you should have. It's not something, it's not the cement block you're trying to build upon. No, no, no. You actually have to carve your life into the rock, which is Christ. You, you literally timestakingly process, you journey, you practice and obey. And while you're doing that, you are carving your soul and your spirit hidden in Christ. So when the storms of life come, it won't affect you, not because it doesn't hurt, not because it's not painful, not because it doesn't let you down, but because you've literally hid yourself within the rock that cannot be moved. I have one more picture to show you. That's me on a camel. That's it. And so as Jesus is, 
It's really fun. Um, so as Jesus is telling his, his audience, he says, you have a choice. I've just laid out this three-chapter-long, very lengthy, very intense message, and you have a choice. Are you going to take what I've told you, and are you going to live it out, practice what I'm saying, and in doing so, carve your life into me, into the rock, so that this life, no matter what it throws on you, cannot move you? Or are you going to choose to hear what I say, say, no, thank you, I'm going to choose my own comfort, my own way, and watch what happens when storms come? This is very sobering reality before us. And so what I wanted to do is just remind us to go through just some of the things. This isn't isn't an exhaustive list. Just some of the things we've talked about through the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want to be careful of is if, and we can go ahead and put the list up there. This is not a list of for you to go and do if you do not have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Because otherwise, you are maybe going against the very reason what this is. This rather, these practices stem from knowing who Jesus is. But if you're trying to do these to get to God, then you have actually done the exact opposite of what Jesus has invited you into. These are a result of hiding yourself within Christ, of understanding it's about knowing him, that he's the gate, he's the road, he's everything. It comes back to him. And as you do that day in and day out, you start to see these things form in your life because every single psychologist will tell you that what you do day in and day out forms who you are. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. He actually says, that's very true. So this is how you should live your life, but it has to come from a certain stream. Otherwise, it'll turn into religiosity or resentment. I I want you to hear this, church. If you try and practice the way of Jesus without knowing Jesus, it will turn into religiosity or resentment. But if these practices flow from an intimacy with your creator, these will turn into flourishing and blessing and purpose. So the first thing that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount is you are blessed. The people that no one thought would be blessed, the poor in the spirit, the mourners, the weak, these are blessed in his kingdom. And we are to be a blessing. The second thing he lays out, that we're to be salt and light. To practice the way of Jesus is to be salt, to flavor the earth, to be light in dark spaces that no one can, can deny or put away. We are to, the third one, to receive and revere the law, the wholeness of Scripture as being fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus does not do away with Scripture but says, I fulfill it. You are to read it through the lens of my life. And fourth thing is we seek inward transformation, not outward conformity. Do you remember how Jesus lays out six commands in the Torah? And as he lays out the six commands in Torah, he says, it's not about murder, don't be angry. It's not about adultery, don't lust. And he lays out things, it's not about how you perform outwardly. It's about are you being transformed? Who are you on the inside? He talks about the, the three practices that he expects his disciples to do. We give, we pray, and we fast. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus because he gave, he prayed, and he fasted. We treasure eternal things and we aren't anxious about earthly things. Where we place our focus and our imagination on is a practice that Jesus invites us into. We don't judge others, right? We don't look at the planks in their eyes. We always have the plank, they always have the speck. 
We ask, we seek, we knock as children to our Father. We love intentionally. And the last one we just read is we grow in the knowing, the intimate relational knowing of Jesus. These are just, you can take a picture of these if you want. You can write them down. You won't remember them. And I'm not even worried about you memorizing this list because I promise you this. If you start living your life at the feet of Jesus every single day, these things will start happening. These practices start becoming a part of your life as you grow closer in your intimacy with Jesus. Your entire foundation changes. Um, I want to take a second and encourage you guys with something. A little bit of a shameless plug here. Um, uh, This is not uh, the way or the tool. Jesus is the way, but this is a tool that we can use as a church to help you out with that. This is, um, and the reason we're talking about it today um, is because this journal goes from July 1st to the end of December. So this is the first day of the journal, and what I loved about this journal for me is it takes the Lectio Divina readings, the readings of churches done for hundreds of years, and it gives you a small reading to, to read through, meditate on, and a place to journal and pray is that uh, our friends up in Portland who designed this, designed this with the idea that reading scripture should not only feed your mind, it should feed your relationship with God. And, it, and it's really been transformative for me. Um, someone who loves to study, loves to teach, and loves to nerd out on all things Bible, um, found myself longing for something more. And it was relationship. And I had totally disregarded the fact that God gave us the scriptures, not just for us to know about him, but to actually know him. And this is just a tool that has been really, really beneficial in my walk with Jesus. Um, and so we're selling this tonight. We'd love if our whole church got these. They're 10 bucks. We're not making any money off them. Um, if you don't have 10 bucks, I will personally pay for you to get one of these journals. Uh, not because I believe in the journal, but because I believe in the transformative power of being with Jesus every day. And this helps that and aids that. Um, then I want to be a bar, I want to be about that in your life. But um, the reason why this is so important, and Jesus says the very last thing He says is, if you don't, if we don't practice those things, if we don't take the intimate relationship with Jesus and live these things out, it says your life will come down with a great crash. And the love of the Father screams out to His children, and says, please don't. Please choose to accept my words and live out the way that I've, I've laid him before you, that I've modeled for you. The third thing tonight, the last thing I wanted to end with is not only does he talk about a new paradigm and a new foundation, but then he shows us a new approach. And, and what's happening here is, is absolutely phenomenal, so, so stick with me. Every single scholar um, that I've looked up, every single commentary that I've read, uh, agrees that the way Matthew is presenting Jesus' teaching is, and his life in general is he's trying to paint Jesus as the new and better Moses, right? That Moses was pointing towards who Jesus was. And so you see Jesus 
Uh, 40 days in the wilderness, and Israel had 40 years in the wilderness, and Israel had 12 tribes, and Jesus had 12 disciples, and even how the book begins, it, it mirrors Israel's beginning, and then Jesus goes up on a mount the same way Moses went on a mount and delivered the Torah and delivered the, t- the Ten Commandments to the people of God, and Jesus stands on the top of a mount and delivers his manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount to them. And so as you're following Jesus' life, every person who's reading this letter or hearing this letter is realizing, man, Jesus is fulfilling. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Moses pointed to and the prophets pointed to. And so I immediately started thinking, well, what happened after Moses gave his sermon on the mount? What happened after Moses gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? And what happened after Jesus gave a sermon on the mount? What was both of their activities? And what I, what I discovered, not the first one, but what I found this week as I was studying was absolutely life-changing. I want to read you what happens after Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountains and smoke, they trembled with fear. Listen to this. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will Die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that you, the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. You can, can you hear the ache in what's happening here, right? Moses gives the Ten Commandments, and it is a dramatic scene. There is smoke and fire landing upon the mountain, and there is an invitation from God. Come be with me. And Moses says, come, let's go into the presence of God. And the people respond as saying, if we go there, we'll die. And he said they kept their distance, and their response was, Moses, you go for us. And begins this pattern again and again that we see in Israel's life where God invites them into to, to intimacy with him. And, and it's overwhelming and it's scary, but it was never supposed to be anything but life-giving to them. And they just couldn't come to approaching God. And Jesus shows up on the scene. In Matthew 7, 24, it says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Do you you understand what's happening here? God, in his infinite love and graciousness, gave his children, the Israelite people, the Ten Commandments, relationship with him through covenant, and invites them into relationship with him. And their response is, we can't approach you. And for thousands of years, the response was, we can't approach you. We can't come that close. And so finally, God, out of his love and his mercy for us, sent Jesus, his only son, to this earth to say, I'm providing you clarity and insight into my heart. But not only am I providing clarity and insight into the law and the covenant I've given to you, I'm actually giving you myself. 
And when I come off the mountain, I'm not inviting you to come to me. I'm coming to you. And not only are you too afraid to come to me, but I'm going to go to the worst and least and most unclean of you. And the very first thing I'm going to do is touch you. Jesus did what we never could. The reality is we're all Israel. Every one of us would rather hear someone speak a sermon than to go spend time in the unpolluted, unearned presence of a living God. We'd rather hear a podcast or read a book than to hear the Holy Spirit whisper to our soul. You speak for us. And tonight, Jesus is inviting every one of us. He says, I get that it's hard for you to come to me. Can I come to you? Can I touch you? As unclean as you feel, as unworthy as you feel, can I come to you tonight? Can I bring you my life, my healing, holistic life that comes through me? You don't have to earn it. It's here for you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And in just a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we do, I, I can't think of a better image than the bread and the cup that was given to a table full of cowards and betrayers. So this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that was shed for you. See, Jesus didn't only touch a leper, he touched every single person, the prostitute, the tax collector, the Pharisee. And he's continuing to do it today. He's doing what we never could. Myself and a few and a few friends are going to be standing over here. We're just going to be available. If you need prayer for anything, you're welcome to come and get that. But as we worship, just a couple of things I would want to encourage you. If, you here, if you're here tonight and you feel like, I'm the last person in the world God wants anything to do with, can I just say you are the person that God wants to deal with. He wants to, to know. He wants you to know him. And this table is an open table. This is for you to come and to take this gift you didn't earn. And for those of us who have worn ourselves out trying to perform our way into God's grace, would we just stop? Would we just rest and lean in to knowing Jesus tonight in this moment? And would we stop practicing to earn relationship with God, but through our relationship with God, would we begin to live out the teachings of Jesus? Would you bow your heads with me?